Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Heads Are Gonna Roll edition. It's Wednesday, August 4th, 2021. On today's show, The Green Knight, it sounds like a Marvel movie, but its IP derives from the 14th century. This new and very trippy take on the ancient chivalric epic stars Dev Patel as a knight, maybe a knight, and he doesn't exactly love the term, but he's in search of dot, 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 question mark, question mark, uh, himself, I think. Dana will tell us. And then... Billie Eilish has a new record, Happier Than Ever. It's a downbeat take on celebrity, love, public shaming, cancel culture. It's uh, great in my estimation, and we will discuss it with Slate's own Carl Wilson. And finally, The Black Widow was meant to be a blockbuster, but also a kind of amends. Scarlett Johansson would star in and carry a Marvel movie. Disney would make a ton of money. Fanboys and feminists rejoice. So why is ScarJo now suing Disney? We discussed the latest chapter in the streaming wars with legal historian Peter Labuza. Joining me today is ICFOP, Isaac Butler. Hi, Isaac. What's an ICFOP? Hi, Stephen. First of all, uh, great to be here. And second of all, I have no idea. What is an ICFOP? You tell me. It's an inner circle friend of the program. Oh, nice. Great, great. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I look forward to being a hierophant friend of the program uh, uh, in the future. <laughs> an HFOP? Yeah. That's very foppy. Hierophant is an extremely foppy word, Isaac. Wait a minute. I consider myself a, a vocabulary nerd, but I have no idea what hierophant is. So I'm presuming some listeners don't either. What does that mean? It's like when you, you're a sycophant and then you get a promotion. <laughs> Isaac? <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I was trying to look up the technical definition here. Sorry. Using words you have to no, 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 Google no, no. Well, yeah, the yeah, definition yeah, sorry, sorry. of. Jeez, 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 jeez. I know, I just want to, I don't want to, I'm going to get it exactly right. A person who brings religious congregants into the presence of that which is deemed holy. <laughs> <laughs> so perfectly apt, uh, uh, choice of words. Um, I should also say you are co-host of the Working Podcast from Slate. But Isaac, also you, I should say, you've got a forthcoming book about method acting called The Method. We play a little game here also. What's your subtitle? Uh, I'm very proud of this subtitle because I actually wrote it myself. And it is How the 20th Century Learned to Act. I love it. Oh, my gosh. And what's your pub date? Uh, first week of February. February 1st is what it says. Uh, uh, I'm going to assume that's correct. Okay. We will discuss on this show without fail. Um, and of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. You've got a a book and it has a subtitle and we talked about it last week. Uh, yeah, there were a couple listeners who thought somehow that I felt um, blindsided by you having mentioning the book and that you sort of stepped on my my big reveal or something. And I just want to clarify that I did not feel that way at all. I didn't know that you were going to mention it, but uh, I was flattered and, uh, and, and glad to talk about it. My subtitle actually overlaps a bit with Isaac. So my book is about Buster Keaton. The title is Cameraman and the subtitle is Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. So it sounds like me and and Isaac are both going to be in conversation about the same the same years in history at some point next year. Yeah, I'm excited to talk uh, both between our books and in person about it. 
All right. Well, I'm excited for both of these books and cannot wait to talk about each of them. Let's uh, let's dig in. The medieval epic Sir Gawain and the Green Knight has enchanted and mystified readers for centuries. It's an Arthurian legend and a turn on the quest narrative. The basic plot is as follows. A mysterious Green Knight appears at Arthur's round table on Christmas Day and issues a challenge. Any knight may strike him freely if in a year he, the Green Knight, is allowed to return the blow in kind. Arthur's nephew Gawain beheads the Green Beast, who promptly retrieves his head, recapitates himself, and says... See you in a year, buddy. Um, that's basically it. The story is the story of that year of time elapsing and Gawain fleeing from and finally accepting his own fate. Here, Gawain is played by Dev Patel in all his callowness and lust. He moves his way through a blasted and anti-heroic world, somewhat reminiscent of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But the movie is a very different movie, um, as we'll discuss. It comes from David Lowry, who wrote, directed, edited, and produced a quadruple threat. Uh, let's listen to a clip, but before we do, Dana, why don't you, uh, why don't you set it up? Yeah, I think all you need to know here is this is before the quest that Gawain sets out on to, um, to get his just due from the Green Knight. And he's talking to King Arthur, who's played by Sean Harris, uh, and who's played in this movie as a very aged and somewhat weakened King Arthur, not at all sort of the, the all powerful boy king that we're used to seeing in Arthurian legend. Was it not just a game? Perhaps, but it is not complete. You truly believe he is sitting in a chapel, counting the hours, willing away the air, waiting for me to come? Well, I do not know. You will tell me. You must seek him out. And if death awaits me, Oh, I do not know of any man who has not marched up to great death before his time. Why hold me to this light? Is it wrong to want greatness for you? I fear I'm not meant for greatness. All right. Well, Dana, let's start with you. This movie is, is uh, you know, certainly anyone going in expecting a summer style blockbuster wide release, you know, action bonanza is going to be completely befuddled. But um, it's surprising a little bit the degree to which plot action, linear plot action, uh, traditional characterization casting are missing from this this movie. Yeah, it's a really, really original approach to some material that I think is is so familiar that it's really hard at this point to approach it in a way that isn't either a sword or sandals action epic or some attempt to have a historically accurate recreation of medieval life. This movie is none of that. I, I should say that I think it's wonderful. It's one of my favorite movies I've seen all year. I should also say that I come to it with the background of someone who majored in medieval studies in college. So it was a long time back now. But this movie, I think people should know going in. And I really hope that they, if it's safe in their area to do so, will try to see it on the big screen. But this movie is this visually luscious often for long stretches, nearly silent, right? Very dialogue-free, although it's got a lot of uh, spooky scoring. Um, sort of contemplative exploration of the interior of Gawain, the character that Dev Patel plays. So what it really ends up being is something that is both medieval, I think, in its kind of visual approach and its respect for the legends of that time, 
and very modern in the sense that it is all about masculinity and a young man struggling with what it is to become a man. I think you mentioned at the beginning that um, that he was a knight or you weren't sure if he was a knight. I think that in the in the original poem, he is in fact a knight, but here he is made someone who is awaiting knighthood, right? Which is an important part of the maturation of this character and the fact that it's a it's a movie in some ways about coming to maturity. Uh, I went in with pretty high expectations because I'm fascinated by David Lowery, have not loved everything he's done, but really, really loved a ghost story, this, this strange and also cont- very contemplative horror movie he made a few years ago, and thought that he was an interesting choice for this material. And one thing that you have to say about it, he's, he's made it entirely his own. <laughs> this in no way kind of feels like he's checking off the box of, I've got to make my sword fighting, swashbuckling action movie. It feels completely personal and uh, an individual. And I really recommend it very strongly. Yeah, I I um I really am looking forward to seeing it again. I uh recently listened to an audiobook of of the poem which I hadn't read in in I don't know 15 years or so. And um it was so fresh in my mind that that a lot of my viewing experience was kind of tracking the divergences from the source material which are legion. You know, he really does does make it his own. And so it you know, constantly thinking about the poem kind of at times uh, uh, pulled me out of it. And I think it is better if you can like really just immerse yourself in this experience, which, uh, you know, it has a stately pace. It has a picaresque structure. It's it's filled with these kind of big images. It's not a lot of dialogue. It's, it's really something you're supposed to kind of immerse yourself in and enter in and, and, and sit in and live with while it's happening around you. Mm, I... Need to hear more, Isaac, about what you felt like sitting in and living within the confines of this movie. Yeah. So, you know, in the original poem, most of Gawain's um, journey to the Green Chapel is ham-waved. The, the poet kind of says, oh, and Gawain had this series of adventures that are all too complicated and exciting and it would just take me too long to talk about them, so I'm just going to skip to him coming to this house. And then he goes to the house, right? Whereas this movie, a lot of it is of the journey. And then actually how the castle is done in the film is very different um, from how it's done in in the poem and is sort of more about the, the film's themes of ambition and the inevitability of death and what is the difference between greatness and goodness, which is I think those are sort of the things the film is is circling around, whereas the a lot of the poem is about Christmas and the guest host relationship and these kind of antiquated ideas and customs that, that um, feel very foreign to our own. And what's exciting to me about the poem, what's exciting to me about anything that, that, that is that old reading something that is that old is encountering the kind of subjectivity and ideas and concerns of an earlier time and seeing how they do and do not intersect with our own. And I don't think that's what the, what the film is doing. The film is instead um, circling around these more contemporary themes and ideas. A friend of mine called it a um, a horny pagan reimagining of a Christmas story, um, which I thought was a funny but somewhat accurate way to look at it. Um, and so uh, I I thought that was really that was really fascinating. I will say the the person I saw it with found the movie incredibly boring. Mm. And uh, I think for her, it was instead of dreamlike, kind of like sitting there while someone tells you about their dreams for two and a half hours. I am afraid I'm that person. I found this movie insufferably boring and, and 
and I'm sorry, also sort of pretentious. I mean, I it the movie is an attempt to make a contemporary film with the medieval mind, but I'm saddled with a modern mind, right? Like, I it's not that I desperately need an action filled plot or a you know linear story or the culmination in some sort of recognizable self realization of the protagonist that echoes in my own experience, but the total absence of these things or near total absence of these things, I just got a little sick of trying to, on the one hand, you know, marvel at the strangeness of the medieval sensibility while also marveling at David Lowry's mastery of the language of cinema. I mean, it, it was, um, finally alienating to me, frankly. I mean, I understand that some of it is quite, there's a a, sort of a, a beautiful, deeply moody gloom to it. There is the total courage of the filmmaker's convictions. There are wonderful performances. I think Dev Patel is is, is uh, um, mesmerizing as Gawain. Um, here's where I got trapped a little bit, and maybe the fault is mine, but I'm being seduced into thinking along with a medieval mind, which is so... I mean, the courage and the and the singularity of the movie is the degree to which the medieval mind is totally resistant to modern modes of like expecting and interpreting narrative. Aren't I supposed to be disappointed and kind of alienated by the film? I don't think that th- that this what this movie is attempting to do is is alienate the viewer. I think that what it's attempting to do is slow down the viewer and mm. and force you to live in these somewhat mystical spaces with Gawain, especially in this long middle section, which, as Isaac said, barely occurs in the poem, which brushes through his journey in a few lines. It really becomes almost a, a Terrence Malick sort of feeling in the middle of the movie, right, where he's he's wandering through these very luminous forests. He's alone almost all the time. He encounters these strange beings that are never really explained and there's a sense in several different places without wanting to spoil what's real and what's not that we honestly don't know whether we're experiencing a subjective reality that Gawain's experiencing on this fantastical journey right or or even maybe we're experiencing a legend that has spun up around it later on Um, and there's a moment without giving away too much during the during the journey where you think that Gawain may have died and Everything that comes after that, I suppose, could be interpreted as either his fantasy at the moment of death or legends that have sprung up around him because he did, in fact, not make it through the journey. And the fact that the movie is willing to exist and to suspend the viewer in that sort of swirling psychological space where you're not sure what's real and what's imagined and what's embroidered legend later on is is something that's really intellectually challenging and kind of dizzying, but that to me was not alienating at all. I walked out of this movie with that great feeling that you seldom get where you are not exactly sure what the meaning of the ending is, but your brain is kind of a fire trying to figure it out, you know, as opposed to a movie that just is, is vague and ambiguous and leaves you annoyed that it didn't, uh, that it didn't make its choices more clearly. I feel like in some ways I wanted it to go more in that dreamlike direction to me, to me, the moment where the film actually falls down, the moment when it's at its weakest is when it has this long discursive speech about the symbolic meaning of the color green, Mm. um, delivered in a very slow, um, uh, push into, uh, Alicia Vikander as she, as she talks about the meaning of the color green and about halfway through that speech, I actually just kind of stopped listening to it because I was like, you are already doing what this speech is doing is already done in your movie visually. You don't actually need to do this. And this writing is not as good as 
the the sort of visuals that you have constructed to try to convey this meaning to us. I have to say that something about this movie I love is that if you have the patience to sit through it, I think that it is generative of conversations afterwards. I think it's mm-hmm. the kind of movie that you could argue about, you know, does that speech belong in there? You could argue about what does the ending encounter with the Green Knight mean? You could argue about whether it is a medieval or a modern sort of take on on knighthood and masculinity. And something that it does that far too few movies do, I think, that are these sort of Joseph Campbellian-influenced quest narratives is ask really deep questions about whether these values that Gawain is is fighting and maybe sacrificing his life for, you know, about chivalry, about valor, about honor and manliness are really worthwhile. And in that sense, I think it it is sort of ineluctably modern. Not that those questions don't come up in the 14th century poem. The 14th century poem is quite remarkable. I think you'll agree, Isaac, for how it ends on this note of ambiguity. And essentially the final message of the poem is sort of don't mess up like Gawain did. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the message is not he is a great hero to emulate, but more like let's all remember his failures and struggles so that we don't have to replicate them in our own lives. Um, And I would just encourage people, if they do make it through this movie, it doesn't have to be before or after or in any order, but if you are interested in the subject matter, go back and revisit the original anonymously authored poem from the 14th century. It's shorter than you would think. It's available in various audiobook versions and probably as a PDF online, all different translations. And it's, it's quite beautiful and strange and extremely readable and has also just been so influential throughout Western history that once you've read it, you're going to see little bits of Gawain popping up in many, many things out there. Mm. All right. Well, um, the movie is The Green Knight starring Deb Patel from David Lowry. Check it out. Uh, you guys seem to be intrigued by it. I thought it was art house kitsch, but uh, send us uh, emails. I'd be curious to know what everyone else thought. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast we typically talk business. Dana, what do we have? Yeah, a couple things for business, Steve. First of all, we just wanted to thank all the listeners who have sent in submissions for the Summer Strut playlist. We've got that compiled. As we mentioned last week, we have now put a cap on submissions because we're past a full 24-hour sleepless day and night period of nothing but listening to Summer Strut submissions. So it's going to take us long enough to whittle those down that I think we can't accept anymore. Uh, But please, if you've sent them in the last few days and they don't make it onto this year's list, save them for next year. We're just as happy to hear them. There's no need for them to be timely in any fashion. And uh, and we're going to do it again next year. So thank everyone for your submissions for that. But I think we are done now for 2021. Our only other item of business this week is to let you know that the Slate Plus segment will once again be answering a listener question. A listener named Peter wrote to us and said, Hi, I'm not sure if this has ever been covered before, but after Dana's mention on a previous episode of wishing she was a paleontologist, I think that was during my uh, endorsement of the, the uh, scientific article about the giant prehistoric rhino that I was so excited about. I was wondering what other careers the Gabfesters sometimes wish they might have taken on and what their ideal relationship with culture might be if it weren't such a huge part of their lives. That's a great question. That's one of those that sends you down a Sir Gawain-style secondary track of imagining what your life might have been. Um, So thanks for that question, Peter, and we will answer it later in the show during our exclusive Slate Plus segment. 
A reminder, as always, that if you're a member of Slate Plus and there's a future question you'd like us to discuss on one of our bonus segments, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a running list of those and we often consult them when we decide about Slate Plus for the week. If you're not a member, of course, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus, where it costs a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you get ad free podcasts, bonus content like the segment I just described and unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate.com. So please do us a favor and support the work we do by signing up at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Like The Green Knight, the Billie Eilish story is something of a fantasy epic, both archetypal and improbable somehow. Uh, It features a young girl who makes an album when she's 17 years old in her bedroom in the house she grew up in with her older brother, Phineas, both of whom were homeschooled and raised by artsy, music-y parents. And then, boom, all of a sudden, it's it's, it's genuinely great, important pop record. It makes her into a global superstar. What must it be like to have that total shift in fortune, perspective, scale, I mean, everything from the bedroom to the globe, right, happen to you, at you, because of you, in spite of you? Billie Eilish returns with her sophomore record, asserting herself as the world's greatest expert on what that's like and on Billie Eilish. To say it's ironically titled is an understatement. Happier Than Ever is a dark record, in my estimation, a very dark record. It's also catchy, funky, slinky, jazzy, torchy. It's great. I love this record. To help us pin it down, we're joined by Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic. Carl, welcome back to the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, why don't you start by picking a track for us to listen to? Yeah, I would say that the this is one of those cases where the album um, very consciously knows what it's doing with where it starts So the opening song, Getting Older, really sets the scene. Things I once enjoyed Just keep me employed now Things I'm longing for Someday I'll be bored of It's so That line, things I once enjoyed just keep me employed now. I mean, she's 19 years old, 19. She's a teenager, and she's already this jaded by fame, I guess. Uh, Kind of extraordinary, right? I mean, you know, you do have to think this has really been a sort of five-year story for her now um, because her first breakthrough with um, the song Ocean Eyes happened in 2016. So, you know, she was 14 when this all kind of got going. Mm. This album, to me, is a um, vast shift from the tone of the first album in ways that um, are both kind of wise and grounded and, and precocious for her years, as always. But also, um, also there, there is a lack, a, a lessening of joy on this album, Um that makes you wonder how deep that disillusionment with the creative process goes. You know, it's one of the things that really distinguished Eilish when she emerged was this kind of um, fantastical sense lyrically and, and in the, in the production that she and her brother Phineas do um, 
that kind of broke through all of the kind of conventional things that had been going on in pop at the time. Um, in my review, I said, you know, that she kind of was side by side with Lil Nas X on that level in 2019, where there was this sense of this kind of new Gen Z sensibility that seemed like it might threaten to go off in a kind of really left field direction. And as much as I think this album is, is really accomplished, I also feel like it's kind of chastened and by necessity returns to a kind of much more conventional set of topics, especially for a second album, you know, dealing with the consequences of fame. And it's also kind of a, a breakup album in its overall arc and, and speaks to those things really intimately and vulnerably, but also in ways that are much more like the rest of the field of pop. And in some ways I, I find it kind of a hinge point where I wonder where she goes from here and, and whether, you know, this is, what what kind of stage this is in her development? Hmm. You know, one one thing you mentioned in your review is that there there is a sort of trap in the album you make right after you get famous that is about the experience of being famous, right? That, that that's been the kiss of death to plenty of recording artists when their second albums uh, do that. You know, what is that trap, and and are are there places you find her deftly avoiding it, or in other places where she falls into it? Or it seems like there's this like it's almost like a pit right in front of her. She has to walk around in order to do the album. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the thing that she avoids is. Um, it's not an album about, you know, the grind of touring and hotel rooms and being, you know, town to town, up and down the dial. Like it's not, it's not that kind <laughs> of rock and rock and roll cliche in that way. Um, and I think the other thing that she does that um, that lends the album weight is is she finds a way to universalize these experiences so that for her. Um, there's a centerpiece spoken word piece in the middle of the album that's about body image and about um, social media and and dealing with the kind of scrutiny in the world in that way. And I think for young women of her age, um, the way that just being on Instagram is mm-hmm. dealing with yes. fame on a certain level is a, is a parallel that she makes a lot on this album. And so I think there's, there are things to identify with that aren't just, you know, poor me. What, what am I going to do with all this money and attention? It really transcends that. We make assumptions about people based on their size. We decide who they are. We decide what they're worth. If I were more, If I wear less, who decides what that makes me, what that means? I mean, I wanted to address Billy as a as a phenomenon, maybe, and as a kind of a a figure for girlhood and young womanhood, maybe more than this album. But she's been such a big figure in my house since since Ocean Eyes. I mean, since she was, you know, just an internet phenomenon with no album at all. And in part, I'm sure that's because I have a daughter who's how much four years younger than her, who mm. is also an aspiring performer and writes songs and, you know, was extremely identified. I wouldn't say Billie Eilish is her favorite artist. That's probably Lady Gaga, but she's more identified with Billie because, you know, it's this, it's this girl making music out of her bedroom that I think any kid who's on the internet can sort of um, easily identify with that figure. And I know that for us, for example, when that copy of Vogue arrived, you know, she just recently posed for this Vogue cover that is a complete 
image overhaul for her, right? Going from wearing her baggy board shorts with her green dyed roots and just her very anti-glamour look that she, she had for all those first few years of fame to being this bombshell with bleach blonde hair and wearing a Gucci bustier and just looking incredibly womanly and movie star-like on the cover of Vogue. And uh, it was a real splash in our household. It was both sort of wow, Billy looks incredible and she's really grown up. And also I know on my part and maybe even on my daughter's too, a little bit of fear for her, you know, just a sense that she's launching herself now into that world of being a glamorous cover girl. And what is that going to mean for her? Um, the album is obviously grappling to some degree with that stuff. But if you think about the documentary about her, which came out, I think, Carl, in 2019, The World's a Little Blurry, the, the kind of concert doc that followed actually, her on her That actually tour. just came out at the beginning of this year. <laughs> Oh, okay, but it was filmed in 2019, I assume, because it's a pre-pandemic situation. That yeah. she's she's touring the world, um, but that's that documentary is really worth watching. I mean, I have my critiques of it, which I won't get into here, but it is a really powerful portrait of her and her brother and her family and sort of the, the art making world that they come from, and how strange it is for that to become this this international touring phenomenon. And the impression I got of her as a person from that documentary is that you know she's. She's really a brilliant, thoughtful young woman, but she didn't seem especially mature in her uh, ability to deal with things like internet fame. And that is not at all a criticism of her. It's, it's me speaking from the point of view of a mom. Basically, I feel like a mom when I watch her in the world and I fear for her vulnerability. You know, it was her brother who was sort of saying, don't read the comments, don't look at what they're saying about you. And it seemed that both her onstage persona and the person that you saw backstage was very concerned with that stuff and was very aware of her image and, and kind of insecure about it. And so I guess I have this very protective feeling towards her and the future of her career, not unlike what I felt toward Taylor Swift when she was younger and just starting out, you know, or even in a way, Lena Dunham, who wasn't as young, but, you know, just talented young women who get very famous and powerful before they're necessarily emotionally and intellectually mature enough for that fame. Just seems like it's a thing that our culture is... Um, is very big on right now and in a way a little bit vampiric about and it, it just worries me that that moment when you know the young woman becomes you know comes out of her butterfly cocoon and appears on the cover of Vogue and then everybody comments on it and then there's a backlash and it all seems very violent to happen to someone who's so young and so fragile and talented so I guess I guess what I'm sort of saying here is be careful Billy you know just just protect yourself as well as you can. Yeah, Dana. I mean, I really share a lot of those feelings and definitely had them around the documentary. And, you know, it's fascinating, you know, things like the Vogue cover were clearly, and she's talked about it a lot, an attempt to escape from kind of one identity cage that she'd found herself put in over the first couple of years where she got praised as being a role model for being non-sexual and held up, you know, as kind of a a paragon in, in her nonconformity in various ways. And then she felt like, Oh, well now this is now you're praising me for not showing my body in a way that shames other young women for showing their bodies and would shame me if I ever choose to show my body. And so I want to take action in that. And all of that is interesting strategy, but it also leads to her making exactly the transition that so many teen pop stars do in their sort of second album phase where it's like, now I am coming out about my, about being a sexual person and, mm -hmm. you know, and stopping being a non-threatening teen star. And that's a, in its own way, a kind of cliche that people go through. And so it's again, this sort of double-edged thing I feel about the phase she's in right now, where at the same time she's being very thoughtful 
about what she's doing. And on the other hand, where is she going in this kind of journey of being a pop star? And, and will she be able to hold on to the things that made her so distinctive and kind of, kind of, you know, frank and, and unafraid in her, in her initial impression on the world. And, and can I just jump in and say, Carl, I think she made, and her, she and her brother made a terrific album. I mean, I think with all the pressure in the world and all the eyes of the world on you, they got together and they made something that built on the first record that they made sonically. It's, it sounds like Billie Eilish, but it sounds like Billie Eilish growing up and going in a new, dire- somewhat new direction or evolving as an artist. Um, and I find it, I find it haunting. I think the songwriting, the production values, the singing, I, I, they all come together for me right away. I instantly, instantly wanted to play this record over and over and over again. I wanted to buy a really expensive car and drive around Los Angeles at night listening <laughs> to this record over and over and over again. Um, it, it, do you agree? Like, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a remarkable album. I think there's a lot that's really, really beautiful about it. Um, I think there's, her voice sounds incredible on it, and she definitely reaches places that she wasn't reaching um, on that level before. And there's, yeah, there's interesting um, reaches into kind of a, a jazzier, um, almost kind of show tunes level that um, that was in the background, but not as much on the first album. Um so musically, I think there's a lot going on. There's a beautiful passage at the beginning of the song Goldwing, where it kind of goes into this kind of neoclassical Kate Bush kind of zone, which I would never have predicted. So yeah, I think there's a lot to admire about it, and, and similarly lyrically, you know, there's there's a, a self possession and an intimacy about it. Um, at the same time, I think over the course of the album, all of those virtues flatten out a little bit um, because because there isn't there isn't quite the dynamic range, and so I think that there's something again, a little restrained through most of this album, not at every moment. There's the great climax of the song, Happier Than Ever, ever for example, where she, for the first time ever, kind of, kind of starts just screaming. But I do think, you know, there's some people have responded to this album by calling it a little dull, and I think it does threaten to be that here and there. It's so aware of what moves it's making um, that it. I think it can tend to get a little claustrophobic. So I'm I'm with you on one level, but I but I do I'm I'm torn as well. And you know, and it's still very new. I feel like Dana that I haven't had quite enough time to live with it to be sure exactly how I'll feel about it in the long term. 
Yeah, I will say that I think it's a little padded, which is something I think you say in your review, Carl, or I know some some critics did, that that it doesn't yeah. quite have enough strong tracks to, to feel like it holds together the way that first album did that was really just one banger after another. I mean, I don't think there's any song in this album that's going to bore its way into my brain the way When the Party's Over has, which is a song that I just constantly, constantly get in my head from her from her first album. Yeah, you know, I mean, for me, I had quite a journey with this album. When I, when I first started listening to it, I was like, this is boring. This is incredibly boring and tired uh, musically. And I just, I'm not interested in this. I, you could put it in the back of a hair salon, like while you're getting your hair cut. I don't, I don't understand. And because uh, we were going to talk about it, I started listening to it more and more and more and more and more. And what I realized was that it's really an album that lives in its details for me. And once I was just sitting there with my headphones on, not a speaker, just my headphones on, the only thing I was doing was paying attention to it. It really opened up to me. To me, it's all about like, when is her breath included mm-hmm. on that opening track? Yeah. And when mm-hmm. isn't it? What are all the little teeny things she's doing with her voice? Because she is really an incredible singer incredible. from moment to moment. When are they bringing out the distortion so it sounds like kind of late period low? And when are they restraining it so it sounds like a torch song? You know, and, and once that started happening, like I can't even tell you which songs I'm that into. I was just like living from detail to detail and really admiring it in in that way. So I've come to quite like the album, but in a different way from how I normally live listen to or like the albums I listen to and like. I mean, this is a classic example of a record that shouldn't have been 16 cuts long. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, you pick the best 12, you pick the best nine, right? And it's a album with coherence and a degree of, you know, it's got a murmuring quality throughout, but it, you know, it has its own internal drive at nine cuts at 16. It's repetitive and, and open to that criticism. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I deal with I deal with this all the time as a critic, you know, because you're coming to something where you recognize that you're not the core audience for a record, and that you know, a a Billie Eilish fan, Dana's daughter's age, you know, probably doesn't have any complaints about there being too many songs to listen to, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but we might, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, Carl Wilson is the uh, music critic for Slate. Carl, thanks for coming back on the show. That was great. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. To your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget. 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, on this show, we are perennially fascinated by the relationship between an old Hollywood business model of wide-release blockbusters and the new streaming uh, business model. There's a new chapter in what promises to be an ongoing story being written right now. Scarlett Johansson's contract for the Marvel movie Black Widow featured bonuses based on theatrical release box office totals, i.e. she got paid based on how much money the movie made in theaters. Then Disney, which brought out the movie, according to Scarlett Johansson and her lawyers at least, undercut that box office by putting it on streaming early. They, I guess in the jargon, closed the theatrical window more quickly than um, anticipated. We are now joined by Peter Labuza. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. Oh, awesome. <laughs> it's so great to have you. You are a uh, legal historian. You specialize in entertainment law and the history of entertainment law, the relationship between studio and talent, and the contract making therein. So uh, this subject is directly in your wheelhouse. Walk us through what's happening here. Give us the basics. Right. So Scarlett Johansson, obviously A-list actress, um, star of both uh, independent films and, of course, uh, has been part of the quote-unquote Marvel Cinematic Universe for almost a decade now since she first appeared in Iron Man 2. Um, and the uh, after, you know, finishing Avengers Endgame, where, spoiler alert, her character was killed, uh, Disney wanted to do one last standalone movie with her. Um, and she wanted a agreement like every other Marvel film which had, which was a giant theatrical exclusive release uh, in theaters worldwide. Um, so this deal was set up in about 2019, just at the same time that Disney was beginning to launch uh, Disney Plus, um, cut to uh, March 2020, the pandemic happens, the film's delayed from May 2020 all the way to, uh, you know, its release only now about a month ago. Um, and the one of the things that Disney did was that they pushed to have the film come out on Disney Plus at the same time that it was coming out on um, in theaters. Disney Plus is their streaming service. So um, Johansson's lawsuit is essentially about um, the push to have it released on Disney Plus at the same time and the sort of way that um, both the um, theater owners have also sort of argued that this has driven a lot of people away from going to the movies, going to uh, theaters because they can watch it online. Um, the studios like Warner Media, when they did Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max, right, they had to pay up front $10 million to Gal Gadot and $10 million to director Patty Jenkins. And then Warner Media did other deals with the films that they've released over this year. Disney is the one who's kind of dragged their feet over this last year to not do that for its talent. And now there's rumors that other stars like Emma Stone and Cruella and possibly Emily Blunt from Jungle Cruise, which was released last weekend and also did well on Disney Plus and not so well in theaters, are looking into similar lawsuits that might, you know, really challenge the way that um, streaming profits and this general pie is being distributed among among, between studios, talent, and other labor groups. It, you know, it, it's interesting you bring that up because it, it, historically, it, it seems to me that, that that 
I guess you could say two of the thorns in the studio's side are the movie theaters after the Paramount decision where they, they have to sell off their movie theaters and then those are those are owned by another entity and talent and especially unions. And it seems to me like if, if you're in either of those two groups, one of the worries, one of the fears about streaming is that it allows the studios to kind of do end runs around both unions and theater owners. So uh, how other than lawsuits, how is that conflict playing out besides in the courts? Yeah, no, that's super important, Isaac. Um, so most of the, the three major um, uh, unions, uh, that would be the Directors Guild of America, Screenwriters Guild, and the Screen Actors Guild, all made um, agreements in 2020 with the studios. But there's been kind of this fight for more of the pie as it goes along, and those will be renegotiated in 2022. And But there's been just this constant worry. Um, I don't know if this... Uh, was covered, but um, the Writers Guild had this whole mass firing of all their talent agents in 2019, and that was finally settled in 2020. Um, not related necessarily to streaming profits, but partially related to other package deals. But I think one of the things that's happening um, that uh, is getting to point is what I've been calling the techification of Hollywood, which is that Hollywood studios are being much more run like their Silicon Valley counterparts. So your Facebooks or, or your Amazons. Um, in terms of how this pie is being built. And the streaming pie is ultimately a smaller pie than whatever the large theatrical one is. So the studios are fighting more to keep it under wraps. And I think really one of the things that I've been advocating for is until we have a true digital box office, something that kind of replicates the, you know, Sunday trades, Hollywood Porter variety box office, it'll be really hard for talent to um, find any way to justify opening up that pie to other people. Yeah, I've wondered about that as we get deeper into the streaming era and we keep on hearing over and over again, oh, well, streaming services don't release their data. That's just how they are, right? I mean, it just seems like at some point there needs to be a legal challenge or some sort of ethical challenge for them to release that data, right? Because otherwise it's really hard to decide Things like, um, you know, contracts or what's a what's a fair amount of residuals for a given performer to get. And I just wonder if there's a pressure from within the industry for that that data to not be so kept under wraps anymore. I mean, I'll say um, so Scarlett Johansson's talent agent, um, whose name I'm going to forget at this moment, I apologize, also negotiated the recent deal with Netflix for the Knives Out sequels, Knives Out 2 and Knives Out 3 that are moving from Lionsgate to Netflix. And I believe that one has a strong talent participation agreement created up front into the deal. So if the film does well, Ryan Johnson gets a nice big check from Netflix potentially. Um, so there's already pushes. And I think the one of the things is both agents and lawyers are looking and advocating for this push. And I think at one point, just because this competition is so fierce between these top companies, Netflix, Paramount with their new one, uh, uh, Disney, of course, and you know all the other ones uh, they're doing, someone's going to have to open up the books because it's going to be the only way to get talent. And talent is going to flood that way. And I think as that, that might finally push. It might, you know, I think I've certainly advocated for other ways uh, in terms of antitrust issues that would be something akin to the Paramount decision, right, where you split the, the streaming companies away from production, which seems to be part of the problem here, that it's all getting consolidated in a way. But it, 
Right. It gets so complicated so fast and every piece is moving so fast that I think that's what this lawsuit is kind of this culmination of all these anxieties that have been happening the last few years um, in terms of what streaming represents to the future of Hollywood in both film and television. Oh, absolutely, Peter. You said something in there that I want to pick out, which is the Paramount decision some of our listeners might not know was the antitrust decision levied against by the Justice Department against uh uh, Hollywood, right? It was a consent decree, correct? They got them to basically agree to divest themselves of the studios, to divest themselves of the theater chains that they owned, right? So yep. thus separating out production and distribution. The The interesting consequence of that was you were seriously able to control risk by having vert- vertically integrated the business in that way. You were able to you know, have huge production budgets, and you knew if you didn't have a necessarily great movie on your hands after you'd spent a ton of money on it, you could force it down the throats of, uh, of the theaters. You could push it through the supply chain uh, and make some money on it. You could package all kinds of films. So you know, if, if uh, you know, a theater showed one, it would have to show this other one. And, you know, because if you can control risk on the business end of it, you can take risks on the creative end. And so one consequence of the consent decree, the Paramount decision, was Hollywood became risk-averse and went through a period of sustained staleness. The streaming model is interesting because by once again having some degree of consolidation between production and distribution on a subscription model, it's not only that you can force something at the other end, it's that you've got totally predictable, huge revenues, therefore massive, virtually unlimited production budgets, you can allow creative people to take massive risks, is the worry, would you have a worry that if there was vertical disintegration on that Paramount model, the golden age of television and streaming might be imperiled? And by the way, just to put a time frame on it, that decision was from 1948. You know, that's a really important question, Stephen. And I'll say I'm a huge classical Hollywood fan. And I love the, you know, the B movies of, you know, the yeah, cheap Westerns right. and crime movies that they kind of just, you know, threw together on shoestring budgets because they would be guaranteed making money. And, you know, one of the things you talk about is right after the Paramount decrease, the studios became risk averse, but the independents became so yeah. gun ho about trying to create things and all, especially the other important uh, legal decision that people have kind of compared to the uh, the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit is the de Havilland v. Warner Brothers case, this case that um, freed talent from uh, the studio contracts that they had been. And I think right, what happened for those independent um, producers and actors, writers and directors is that they understood the risk that every film that they made was, Mm -hmm. could be the thing that make or broke their career. And so I think, you know, we look at the 50s and obviously like we can look at the bloat of a 10 Commandments or a Ben-Hur um, or some of the musicals. Though some of those are really, really great. But then we also think about the films made by, I think of Ida Lupino's independent films or the Roger Corman B-movies and eventually, right, the new Hollywood sure. of the 60s and 70s that really was driven by um, studios making these negotiated deals with talent that had power to kind of, um, you know, push them and give them just the amount of budget. So when I think about what the future of streaming might be, um, one of the things is I feel that the comparison between the B movies of the 30s and what Netflix kind of 
throws onto their streamer seems to be a little different in quality. And that's just my own personal opinion. I know people can feel differently. But I also feel um, that we're in such a different place now for talent and the risk that they're feeling that um, they're already creatively energized to make interesting things and ready to do it. And they're coming to the ideas as opposed to the studios proposing them. So I think, you know, what's being lost is they feel like they're putting in all this effort and talent into a set of studios that no longer necessarily feel, um, you know, that are certainly willing to take their ideas and give them the money to make them, but not necessarily share in the, you know, the profits and the fruit of the labor at the end of the day. Peter, this was a great segment. And this is such a, I mean, this is an ongoing subject. It's your area of expertise. I hope you'll come back on the show uh, repeatedly. Would love to. Peter Labuza teaches at San Jose State University. He writes about the history of Hollywood deal-making, and uh, he, he will be back soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what do you have? All right, Stephen, since we were talking about a a fancy word that I didn't know, hierophant at the top of the podcast, and because you gave that great endorsement last week that was all about Socrates and the Socratic method, uh, I have to endorse a word this week. I'm just going to endorse a a single word and the etymology of that word. Do either of you know the word myutic? M-A-I-E-U-T-I-C? No. And, uh, anything about the context of that word? No. I'm no. intrigued. Sock it to us, Dana. Uh, right. Socrates it to you. Okay. So <laughs> myutic my came along, and I can't remember the context of what I was reading about, something philosophical, and, um, and was a word I had never heard, so I immediately looked it up. And the etymology of it is just so fascinating and so moving and taught me not only uh, about this word, but a little bit about Socrates and philosophy that I didn't know. So I'm going to read the entire definition of myutic that I came across. Unfortunately, I don't have the source in front of me right now, but I promise it was something, it was something valid. It wasn't sort of, you know, wordbucket.com. I think it was Merriam-Webster. It says, Myutic comes from myutikos, the Greek word for of midwifery. In one of Plato's dialogues, Socrates applies myutikos to his method of bringing forth new ideas by reasoning and dialogue. He thought the technique analogous to those a midwife uses in delivering a baby. And here's the killer in parentheses. Socrates' mother was a midwife. A teacher who uses myutic methods can be thought of as an intellectual midwife who assists students in bringing forth ideas and conceptions previously latent in their minds. So, I mean, just as a, as a concept about teaching, this is so profound, right? The idea that what teaching is, is, is akin to midwifery and that you're bringing something forth that's already within your interlocutor. And I think, Steve, that was a lot of what you were talking about last mm-hmm. time, right? That, um, that the Socratic method is more than just saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong over and, and over mm-hmm. again. That there's a generosity to it and a sense that you're bringing forth something that, that's already there in the other right. person. But even just the historic note that Socrates is the son of a midwife, I thought was absolutely incredible. And I immediately yeah. wanted someone like Hilary Mantel to write historical novel, right? A closely researched historical novel about Socrates' mother 
mother being a midwife and, you know, how it was that she brought her son up to become this this great philosopher. Um, so I love Mayudic. I love its etymology. And that's my endorsement for the week. Ah, that's marvelous. I love that, Dana. Uh, Isaac, what do you have? So because we talked about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight this week, uh, I want to heartily endorse Arthurian legend as a thing that people can just sort of go out and uh, experience. Uh, The stories themselves are fun. The poetry is not inaccessible in part because it's been translated. You know, this this stuff is great. Summer is a perfect time for it. And uh, a lot of it's on audiobooks. So I'm going to recommend two. um, The Sir Gawain and the Green Knight as translated by Simon Armitage that's narrated by Bill Wallace. There's an audiobook of it. You can get it wherever you buy your, whatever app you buy your audiobooks from. Um, it's an amazing performance, a wonderful translation. He also reads the introduction and the translator's notes, so you get an enormous amount of context. And uh, it has it in both English and the um, original. So, you know, just to give an example of what it's like, here's a little bit of uh, Bill Wallace narrating the poem in contemporary English. Once the siege and assault of Troy had ceased, with the city a smoke heap of cinders and ash, the traitor who contrived such betrayal there was tried for his treachery, the truest on earth. And here's a little clip of the poem in Middle English. Sitting the siege and the assault was ceased at Troy, the Borg, Britannant, and Brent to Brondes and Askes. The Tulk that the tramas of treason there ruled was tried for his treachery, the truest on earth. Anyway, it, it's a great treat. The whole thing, even if you wanted to listen to the poem in both forms, the whole thing is like five hours long. So I, I highly recommend taking the time to do it. The other one, of course, the the very famous Arthurian uh, legend is The Death of Arthur by Thomas Mallory. Uh, um, and there is a version of it that I actually just started yesterday that I'm enjoying so far, narrated by Philip Maddock, that's M-A-D-O-C, that uh, you can also get on audiobook. Um, they make, they were meant to be told as stories to people. So it sort of gives you this feeling that you're sitting by the fireplace and someone is spinning this ancient yarn for you. It's, it's, it's a really wonderful, fun summertime, uh, joyous experience that I, that I highly recommend. Uh, all right. Well, last week we talked about this, um, this kind of subgenre of nonfiction books about Hollywood disasters. One of the great ones is final cut by Stephen Bach, who greenlit the movie Uh, Heaven's Gate, and uh, wrote really, I think, the definitive insider's take on 1970s Hollywood. Just a brilliant book. Um, But there are others. There's Devil's Candy, the podcast that that is based on, you know, the account of the disaster that was uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, And and then there's um, uh, The Studio by John Gregory Dunn I'd sort of forgotten about, which is about the making of Dr. Doolittle, principally about how the studios went all in on on Dr. Doolittle and a couple of other big budget musicals and sank themselves uh, more or less in the late 60s. But I forgot one that's really a fine, it's just a tremendously good, uh, well-done nonfiction book in its own right. It's by Lillian Ross, who for 50 years was one of the great writers at The New Yorker. And she did a book called Picture that New York Review of Book, Books Classics uh, has has a great edition of. And it's about John Huston, the great film director, attempting to make a uh, red badge of courage, a sort of passion project of Huston's forever. And he finally gets to do it. And it's a fly-on-the-wall account by an 
an exquisitely gifted, like rapier sharp New Yorker writer, uh, you know, uh, from the golden era of that magazine, just observing how Hollywood mediocrity pecks away at the vision of the great director. And uh, it's just a terrific book. And then very quickly, I, I, I endorse this advisedly, but there's a show on Netflix. It's a South Korean TV show, one of the most successful TV shows they've ever made. It's called Crash Landing on You, and it's kind of great. It's about a chaibol heiress who, thanks to some windsurfing fluke, ends up in the DMZ and then finally in North Korea where she's trapped and trying to get out and you know, is uh, um, taken in by a kind of mid-level soldier and the two of them embark on a kind of romance and it's just like it's sort of silly and its sensibility is i think very south korean it's 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 got a kind of unfamiliarity in in tone and pace and and attitude that you that you become fluent in after a while and then it's it's very fun i kind of love this show i'm curious whether any of our listeners have watched it i'm not quite done with it but um, after kind of needing to get over an initial hump, uh, I'm I'm more than there and quite quite uh, enjoy it. Anyway, Isaac, uh, as always, a total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Stephen. And uh, Dana, that was great. Thanks so much. A joy as ever. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. I would love, I'd love to hear feedback on Green Knight, uh, Crash Landing on You, on Hierophantism and Mayudic, uh, uh, you know, dialectical practices, anything you heard in this episode, we'd love to hear uh, feedback from you. So please do that. Our intro music is by uh, the glorious Nick Bertel, the, the film composer. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Grace Woodruff. For Isaac Butler and Dana Stevens, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we will see you soon. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details